I want you to imagine the most beautiful place you've ever been. Or if not the place you've ever been, the most beautiful landscape or location that you have ever seen, even a picture of. What is the most beautiful, shockingly beautiful thing you've ever seen? For me, it was a place in Iceland called the Gullfoss Waterfall. Uh, it means the Golden Falls. And it is, I mean, it's just a waterfall. They got a lot of waterfalls there. But there's something, I'm not, I don't know, I love nature. I love getting out in nature. But I'm not really a starer. Like, I don't just stand and stare a lot. But I don't think I've ever been to a place where I've stopped and just stared for so long. You can Google it later. Gullfoss, G-U-L-L-F-O-S-S waterfall it's beautiful but imagine that place in your mind close your eyes if you want to imagine that beautiful stunning shockingly absurdly beautiful place and now i want you to consider how that stunning location is not stunning to everybody it is beautiful undeniable but some people were born there so it's been a part of their entire life. It's, it's sort of old news. Undeniably, even to them, they would say it's beautiful, but it's no longer surprising. Others work there. Right? That wherever this most beautiful place you're imagining, somebody works there, and their idea of this beautiful location is tainted with vocation. Think of laboring and working there. It's not shockingly beautiful to them because it's, it's, it's a job. And for others, this stunning and even shockingly beautiful place is part of their mindless commute. It blurs by them on the drive. Psalm 23, the passage that we'll be looking at this morning, is one of the best known and most beautiful portions of Scripture. It is arguably the most well-known poem in all of history. It is shockingly beautiful beautiful it is stunning even and if you are here and this is the first time you ever encountered psalm 23 if you're like what's this guy talking about welcome i hope you enjoy the scenery it is beautiful and i hope more than its beauty i hope the truths contained in psalm 23 dare i say even change you but i would guess that for the majority of the people here you would fall into the camp of those who are aware of Psalm 23. You are returning to the beautiful scenery of Psalm 23. And even if you haven't considered it deeply, which I know many of you have, others of you have taken in its beauty, uh, maybe without even knowing it. You hear the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you, and you already know, I've heard that. It's been in movies, it's been at funerals, it's, I've heard this before. But I want to caution each of you that have visited this beautiful psalm before, that it is easy to miss the beauty because of familiarity. You can acknowledge that it is beautiful, but it's no longer shockingly beautiful. Because maybe you grew up with Psalm 23. Maybe you've recited this poem, maybe even memorized it, and you've then therefore recited it more times than you've even deeply thought about the words in it. Again, you could acknowledge it's beautiful. You might have grown up in the church. You could even be a Christian you can acknowledge these truths, but they can become no longer surprising to you. 
Or maybe you're here and you're so familiar with the Bible, either because of uh, devoted service to the church, a lifetime of service, or maybe, uh, like me, you, this is part of your job to, to study these things. And, and because of that, this, the beauty of it can be tainted, in a sense, because it, it gets hitched to your vocation or, or what you do. And maybe others of you fall victim to hearing these words, the words of Psalm 23, which are so well rehearsed that they blow by us like a mindless commute. They're beautiful scenery that just is there as we're in that semi-comatose state as if you're driving to work. It's as if there's nothing to even notice. And these examples of growing up or vocational or... Uh, or the mindless commute, this, this isn't only tra- true of Psalm 23. We can do this with the whole Bible. We can even do this with the songs that we sing, right? If you look, look back through your bulletin this afternoon and look at some of the statements we just sang. Mind-boggling. But they just kind of roll out, right? We don't, we don't think about them. But I think a passage like Psalm 23 is an opportunity for us to pump the brakes and to consider such a beautiful passage of Scripture and be again shocked by it. And we can, we can notice that. I just want to show this example in, in even the first few words of this song. They expose powerful truths. Look at the very first words. The psalm starts with the Lord, or uh, the Lord in all caps, which is one Hebrew word, the name Yahweh. That's God's personal covenant name. So if we stop there, first word in the original, or first two words in our Bibles, the Lord Let's, if we stop there, we can acknowledge the fact that billions of people have lived and died and lived today and believe that there is no God. Here in Psalm 23, one word in or two words in, we see acknowledged that there is a God. There is a God. Yahweh. Sovereign, promise-making, promise-keeping God. So if you're here and you would describe yourself as an atheist, I invite you this morning to consider what it would mean for there to be a God. Just consider with us what that would look like, what that would mean, and what it would look like if that God were like the God that we see in the Bible, the God that we see in Psalm 23. But look, if we continue, we see the Lord, what's the next word? Is. The Lord is. We can stop there. This word, too, exposes profound truth because billions of people have lived and died and live today who may acknowledge that there is a God, but it's impossible to know God. So you could, you could qualify it saying, the Lord, yes, that's a fact, but the Lord is something? How could we ever know that? Well, Psalm 23 begins exactly there. The Lord is. Yahweh is. He's not just a force. He's not just an existence, uh, he can really be known. And so if you are here this morning and you would consider yourself as agnostic, you believe that there is a God, but he can't be known, I invite you to consider this morning the good news that God is not disconnected in the way you might think. There are true facts about him. The Lord is something. Uh, But more than that, he is personal. He has characteristics. He has attributes. He can be known. The Lord is. Don't worry, we won't do this for 40 minutes straight. But the next word, the Lord is my. 
my. Think about that for a second. The Lord is my. Not only are we about to hear something about the Lord, the creator and sustainer of the universe, we are about to see that he is something. But what is he? He is my. We are about to hear something about the Lord in relation to us. Not even just in relation to us, but who he is or who he can be to us and for us. Don't let that glide over you this morning. The Lord is my. That's the starting place of Psalm 23. And so instead of letting Psalm 23 blur by us as we go on our mindless commute through life, let's see it for what it is, which is God's good, holy, and true word for us today. There's a few different ways that we can uh, acknowledge that. We can do that in just these words. There's me trying to set up the profound truth we're about to consider of God's word. But there's practical things we can do too, which are not uh, magical. They are not uh, things that, that add anything. Uh, but they, they do remind us of the power uh, and the punch of these truths. And so one of those is standing as we read God's word. Again, we are not bound by scripture to do this, but it's a helpful reminder, at least for me, I know, to set apart God's word from my words. And so I invite you, if you're able, to stand as I read Psalm 23. And as you're doing so, the other thing that we can do is to thank God for his word. If you believe that God has given us his word, I would encourage you to, with me, say thanks be to God when I finish reading. If you say it in more than a whisper... You might even encourage somebody around you. And who knows, you might even be encouraged yourself. Let's hear God's word. A psalm of David. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God amen please take a seat Psalm 23 describes life under God's care. Life under the care of a loving God. And I've summarized the big idea of Psalm 23 as life under God's care is 
good. That is a shockingly beautiful truth. Please don't leave here today and miss that. Life under God's care is good. And we'll be considering that as we work through verse by verse through this psalm. I've had such a sweet week studying Psalm 23, and it is in one part a psalm that preaches itself, and in another part an unpreachable passage of Scripture, because there's just so much there. But as we work through verse by verse, I've tried to consider life under God's care through a few different lenses. Uh, The first is a supplied life. The next is a protected life. Uh, The third is an abundant life. And then finally, an eternal life. Life under God's care is good. And so first, a supplied life. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Already, those questions that we had posed at the beginning, uh, who is our Lord? What is he like? Well, that's answered right away. He is our shepherd. He is our shepherd. This describes not just who he is, but it describes clearly uh, what he does. A shepherd's primary responsibility was to care for his sheep to care for his sheep. That's simply who a shepherd is and what a shepherd does. And so it's, it's a huge statement to consider that, that God is our shepherd. Now, shepherding imagery is likely not the most familiar metaphor to most of us. Who knows? Maybe you grew up as a shepherd. Uh, but it would have been very familiar to our original audience. David himself, who wrote this psalm, was a shepherd. Uh, but it's not that hard of a metaphor for us to get a handle of. It's a shepherd, right? The Bible frequently talks about shepherds. We see well-known characters through the Bible who were shepherds. They had flocks. We think of Abel near the very beginning, Abraham, Jacob and his sons, David, again, who wrote this psalm. We see prophets like Amos, uh, or even the the story of the shepherds at at Jesus' birth. Shepherds, it's a a regular thing in Scripture. But we also see shepherds in a, a metaphorical sense consistently through Scripture, Through the Old Testament, we see pretty much anybody in leadership could be described as a shepherd, whether that's some kind of a leader or a king. As we get into the New Testament, we see uh, shepherds being uh, the same as pastors, elders in the church. And of course, like here, we see God described as a shepherd and, and Jesus himself being described as the good shepherd, the great shepherd, or even the chief shepherd. So it's a regular, reoccurring thing, shepherding. In each of these human examples, though, we'll separate God as a shepherd for a second. The Bible has very strong language for both good and bad examples of shepherds. We see bad examples like the faithless shepherds throughout the Old Testament who who abandoned their people, who who looked for their own gain. Uh, Passages like Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 25 describe these bad shepherds. And honestly, some of the, the most difficult language to wrestle with. Some of the most condemning words that we see in Scripture are to these shepherds who neglect their sheep. We also see in the New Testament, pastors and elders are commissioned with keeping watch over the flock that God has entrusted to them. That pastors and elders will give an account for the souls that have been entrusted to their care. We see that teachers in the church are going to be judged with greater strictness. These are serious examples and warnings But similarly, good leadership, good shepherding is commended throughout the Bible. 
You see, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. Those are some of King David's last words as he talks about good, godly authority, good, godly shepherding. And so the consistent pattern, the metric by which we measure shepherding, how good of a shepherd are you, is how well they care for their sheep. And so the question we ask right away of God, our shepherd, well, how does he measure up? How is his shepherding? We get that answered immediately. Under his care, we see that we shall not want. We shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. We see food here. We see water here. We see peace. This is what God supplies us as our good shepherd. Now, this is not a proof text that we can use to name it and claim it. I, I won't ever need to want anything because I can have anything I want. That's, that's not what the passage says. It doesn't say that. It says that we shall not want. Not that God will give us everything we want. Small difference in words, big difference in meaning. Because God supplies everything we need. We will have no lack. Therefore, we will have no want. We shall not want. His provision for us trumps all of our unnecessary wants. I think I want all sorts of things. Uh, Kids, I think you know this truth. If you haven't learned this already... You will, and take this from someone who was a kid at one point in time. Not everything you want is good. Not everything you want is good. I remember one of the first times I got left home alone. At least I think I was home alone in my memory. I was either home alone or I was very sneaky, okay? And I knew that my mom had this tub of vanilla icing in the fridge, and I was hungry. And so I got a spoon, and I cooked, and I ate. And I ate, and I ate, and I ate. And it was wonderful. Until it wasn't. When that icing made a reappearance, and I was very ill. And it was well over a decade until I could eat vanilla icing again. I wanted that vanilla icing. But that is not what I needed. God being a good shepherd to us and supplying our every need is not the same as giving everything we want. That would simply not be good shepherding. Because we want all kinds of things that are not good for us, that are far, far worse than vanilla icing. Life under God's care is a supplied life. I thank God that he gave me parents who didn't raise me in a way that I got whatever I wanted. And I thank God that the way he cares for me, the way he cares for us, is that he will give us everything we need so that we shall not want. As much as I think I want fridges full of vanilla icing, I need green pastures. I need still waters. I need what restores my soul, not what gives me a sugar high. So a question for each of us to ask this morning is, what are you chasing after to restore your soul? What are you chasing after to supply your life? What are you looking at to supply you with joy and peace? What are you chasing that that you think will will fill you. They may even be good things, 
But what God promises is truly good. Instead of chasing after what you hope will supply you, trust that God's promises are good. That what he promises to supply you with are good. And follow him. Follow him. We'll see this, this becomes even more important as the, as the psalm continues, the, the need to be following God. But we see that the good shepherd leads us in the paths of righteousness. Paths of righteousness. We see that in verse 3. Now, in its simplest firm form, this verse can be explained or translated directly as he just leads us down the right paths. Now, there is a spiritual element to this as well because if we follow the right paths in god's mind that is righteousness uh, doing the right thing following his instruction following his word but it is good news that our shepherd leads us down the right paths and he does that for our good because this is that supplied life but we also see that he does this for his glory for what we see at the end of verse three for his name's sake So a lot of truths are already being heaped onto us at this point in the first few verses. But what we consider first is that life under God's care is a supplied life. We lack nothing. Our shepherd leads us to food, water, soul-restoring peace, and takes us down the right path. This is a description of life under God's care being a supplied life. And at this stage... I know what you're thinking. Psalm 23, although there's a lot of wonderful truth already, it feels a little bit idealistic. But you see, it doesn't stay there because life under God's care is not only a supplied life, it is also a protected life. A protected life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death. This is the deepest possible darkness. This is not a light trial. It's the context of Psalm 23. We can think, oh, this is kind of a happy psalm. And there is joy, but it is joy through the storm. And I know, I know that many of you know what this valley of the shadow of death feels like. You may feel like you are in it today. We see that it is through this deepest valley that he leads us. These are the well-worn right paths of our shepherd. This is not a paradox, just for clarification in, in Psalm 23. It's not like there's two roads. You can either choose the paths of righteousness or the valley of the shadow of death. Those aren't uh, the two roads we get to between verses 3 and 4. We see that they are one and the same. The right paths that our shepherd leads us on is through the valley of the shadow of death. It's how we get to green pastures. Because the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death is inevitable. And there's a realistic tension here in Psalm 23 because of this. And whether it's that valley of the shadow of death we see here in verse 4, or whether it's being in the presence of our enemies in verse 5, there is a, there's a weightiness here. It's not idealistic at all. It's real life. And David knew this. He knew what life was like to be in the valley of the shadow of death, to face very real assault and attack, to be followed. He's going to talk later about how goodness and mercy shall follow him all the days of his life. Man, 
David knew what it meant to be followed. He had multiple people in his life pursuing him to kill him. So he knows what it means to be followed. He knows what the valley of the shadow of death is like. He knows what it's like to be in the presence of his enemies. But he grounds all of this hope here because the choice he runs into and the choice we all run into as we consider the, va- the valley of the shadow of death is not whether we're going to get into the valley of the shadow of death. It's whether we want to have our shepherd leading us when we're in the valley of the shadow of death or not. And amazingly, it's through these deepest, darkest valleys that David says that he will fear no evil. Why? Because our shepherd is not only existent, he's not only out there somewhere, he is with us. He isn't standing at the edge of the valley of the shadow of death saying like, yeah, go on in there, I've been there before, you'll be okay. That's not what he said. He says, for you are with me. You are with me. Don't let that be the scenery blowing by you, okay? Here. God is with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Therefore, we will fear no evil. That is good news. Don't miss that because our shepherd protects us. We see the shepherding imagery continue. It says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A shepherd carried often two implements. One would be a short club uh, that they would have with them. That's the rod and then the staff, or what we might often think in our minds of that shepherd's crook. Both were tools used to protect the sheep, but in different ways. Because a shepherd's chief responsibility was to care for his sheep. Now, how does a shepherd care for his sheep? He keeps them alive. Right? That's what parenting feels like a lot, right? Let's just keep these kids going. But that's a, a, a shepherd's chief responsibility. Feed them and protect them. Provide for them, protect them. Okay, and we could do that. As a shepherd, we can see it. They would do that by defending against predators. Uh, my wife, Mariah, and I were down in uh, D.C. a couple weeks ago on vacation. And the church we visited had an intern who was interviewed in their evening services. And he grew up in Ethiopia. And he was a shepherd in Ethiopia. And so the question that the one pastor asked him when he was interviewing him was, what was the hardest part about being a shepherd? He just said one word, hyenas. That was, that was his job, was to protect the sheep against the hyenas. He's like, man, if you stay out too late, the hyenas come. So you gotta, you're not only worried about yourself, you've got to protect your sheep. That was, his, that was the job. There wasn't a setup there of what, you know, how did you protect the sheep. It was just what was the hardest part? Protected them. I had to keep them alive. The hyenas wanted to get them. The chief aim of a shepherd is to keep his sheep alive. And we legitimately see that in real shepherding from fighting off predators. Uh, But we also see this uh, metaphorically in the way that God protects us. Uh, There isn't a literal rod, but he protects us in different ways. But then we also see this staff that, that the staff is used to help us as his sheep. Maybe ushering sheep along. Moving them in the right direction. Maybe even using it to grab or, or direct a wandering sheep who is going where they shouldn't go or wandering off a cliff. Sheep are wanderers. I was at Pete and Mallory's house uh, a couple days ago, and I was amazed at their little kitten that was just wandering around. And it was wandering, but it always you could see it was thinking. It knew where it was. It knew where home was. Cats think about stuff like that. I was researching sheep this week. They don't think about stuff like that. They just wander. They, they just they are cruising along, and then they wonder how they got where they got. They're not like 
cats. They don't know how to find their way home. Well, if a good shepherd is a good metaphor for God, wandering sheep is the perfect metaphor for us. And these tools, the rod and the staff, are perfect metaphors to understand how God cares for us. He protects us from both external and internal threats. And it's a sweet truth that God protects us. He does this through many means. We've considered deeply over this last year, going very slowly through Ephesians 6 in the armor of God. We see how God protects us there. We see that he, we see that he protects us in ways that we don't even know or see. We see that he protects us in giving us brothers and sisters around us who, who promise to have our backs. We see that he protects us by giving the church under shepherds, pastors, or elders to keep watch over the flock who have been called and commissioned to guard the flock of God. And God protects us through discipline. He, he pulls us back when we are failing, falling, and wandering. And he does this through the church. He commissions the whole church to help in calling back and disciplining us when we unrepentantly sin. And he does this through gentle leading. He moves us along those right paths, the paths of righteousness. So this is why the rod and the staff, they comfort us. Our shepherd is with us in the valley. He protects us from external threat and internal threat. Because our internal wandering forgetfulness and sheep-like state, uh, as we, again, the song we sang at the very beginning of the service, prone to wander. And here's Psalm 23, though, between verses 4 and 5, we, we see expanded the vision, a bigger and more beautiful picture. The Psalm 23, even though it could end at verse 4 and be good news, we see that, that God does more than supply our needs and protect us. We see that verses 5 and 6 just add a, an impossible dimension to the facets of the ways that God cares for us. And so we see that life under God's care is also an abundant life. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. God is not only our shepherd, he is also our host. And so as you picture the vivid imagery that we get in Psalm 23, sitting at a table, you can break up the metaphors in your mind and not imagine sheep sitting at the dinner table. You can imagine people now, okay? But it's still that same idea that us as our, our metaphorical prone to wander sheepiness that we have, we are invited to the table. God is our host. And we are invited to a, a table that we simply don't deserve to be at. Imagine you got a letter in the mail this week, and it was a nice envelope. You could just tell the paper was expensive, and it had one of those wax, like, stamp things in it. And, on, and when you look closely at the wax stamp thing, it said Buckingham Palace. Like, whoa. You open it up, and it's an invitation to the queen's funeral. You'd be like, I don't belong there. Ah, but you know, why not? I'll go. So you get a plane, you know, Mike flies you there, and then you get to uh, England, and you, you, you go to the funeral, and you're sitting there, and you're, the whole time you're thinking, man, I don't belong, but hey, I got invited, I'm here. And then all of a sudden, Kate Middleton comes up to you at the end of the service and says, hey, why don't you come back to the palace? Uh, uh, why, don't, why don't you come to the castle and 
and we'll, uh, we'll just have like a kind of an intimate family get-together. Why don't you join us for dinner? You'd be, that's absurd. How could I ever find myself at that table, a part of the family meal? I, I, I simply, I, you might be wonderful people, but you don't belong there. Right? As we read verse 5, we find ourselves in a similar situation, which, which when we really think about it is, is even more absurd. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Psalm 23, 5 describes a place of honor. I don't imagine many of us have high on our to-do list getting our heads anointed with oil when we go over to people's houses. Uh, for the men and kids that come to our place tonight for the HCC class saying, I won't be anointing your head with oil when you arrive to honor you. But this was such a huge statement. To anoint someone's head with oil, to have them sit at your table, was not saying, welcome, my guest. It was saying, you are part of the family. You are in. You belong. But the problem is for all of us, each and every one of us, our wandering and our sin, we have made it impossible, absurd even, that we would be able to sit at that table. We are not worthy let alone honored. Because our sin separates us from God. Because God is perfect. He can't ignore or even coexist with sin. We are like a drop of poison. That gets, if we think if we get dropped into a glass of clean water, that we'll stay as our own little wicked selves and the water won't be affected. If God is perfect, he just he can't. We, we, we poison everything with our rebellion. We poison everything with our sin. And so our sin separates us from God. And to, to be a guest at God's table, to be a guest of honor, is a place that you and I could never get on our own merit. Because each and every one of us have sinned. We have gone our own way. We have wandered. We have rebelled. No matter how good we try to be, we can't get in. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Psalm 23 what it points to is that God would send his own son into the world to live a sinless life, to live a life that actually deserved to sit at the table, to be a place of honor, the anointed one. But as the anointed one, he would come, and instead of having his cup overflow, which only his deserved uh, to be overflowing with God's kindness and God's mercy, what he did is he drank the cup that we deserve, the cup of God's wrath, so that our cup could overflow. That because of Jesus and his perfect righteousness and us in our wandering sinfulness, that, that he did that so that we could trade places. That when God looked at him on the cross, when he died for our sins, God saw all of our wandering, all of our failings, all of our sin. And when he looks at us, he sees Jesus in all of his righteousness. And that's what get us, gets us one of those fancy little name tags at that t table we don't deserve to be at. Because of Jesus' righteousness credited to us. And the way that we receive that, the way that we can know that is by turning from our sin, turning from our wandering rebellious ways and trusting in Jesus as our perfect sacrifice, the perfect atonement. 
perfect substitution for our sin. That is the the good news. It is Jesus' sacrifice and substitution that gives us hope. It's the way that we are cup can overflow. It's the only way we can have the surety that we see in verses 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You see that word mercy there, surely goodness and mercy. That is the same word we've encountered a few different times. Hesed, steadfast love. We know that perfectly through Christ. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then listen to this. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is not absurd to be invited to that table because of what Jesus has done. And so if you are here this morning and you don't know this truth, turn from your sin, trust in Christ. This hope is held out for each and every one of us today. And it's good news. Jesus died so that we might live. He is the good shepherd. So he's described in John chapter 10. He's the ultimate shepherd who hears his sheep, who knows his sheep, and who loves his sheep so much that he would give his life up for them. Think about that. If your chief aim as a shepherd, if you put yourself in, in the position of a real shepherd, you'd say, I love those sheep. It's my job to protect those sheep. But you, you got to know there's a line, right? Like, I'm not going to die for that sheep. That's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what he did. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. That is the stunning beauty that we get to consider from our vantage point as we read Psalm 23. It's the good news that we have a shepherd who, who not only supplies our greatest needs, he supplies everything we need. We have an abundant life, an abundant life because of what he did. He protects us. And so for us, the calling is clear. We need to trust him, him who promises to supply all our needs, to protect us, and to give us an abundant life. This is how we can know peace with God, Christ alone. Because Jesus didn't simply die. He rose from the dead. He defeated death. He made a way for us to be confident that we could be at peace with God, that when we come to that table, we don't have to come with our head hung in shame. We can come with confidence. We sang that earlier. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to God. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. And it's as we think about Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' resurrection that we come to that final facet of life under God's care, an eternal life. I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. This is the amazing, panoramic, shocking even, beauty of the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done, we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. More than as a dinner guest, that's not the way the Bible talks about us. Like, uh, you know, he just like kind of gave the stamp and said, yeah, you guys are okay, but keep your distance. We come as children, sons and daughters, adopted into God's family because our sins have been paid for. We are like the prodigal son who comes home with nothing but empty hands and receives sonship. Because Jesus is the good shepherd. That's described in John chapter 10. He is the great shepherd. That's described in Hebrews chapter 13. And he is the chief shepherd who's described in 1 Peter 5. He is the shepherd who, because of what he's done, we need nothing more. He's supplied 
every need. We shall not want. We can lay down in green pastures and be led beside still waters because he's the one who went to the ultimate valley of the shadow of death, death itself for us. He showed us the ultimate path of righteousness, the right path, yet humbled himself to the point of death so that we don't have to fear sin. We can fear no evil because evil has been dealt with. He is, in his sacrifice, the one who ensured that we have a place at the table. That even though he is the anointed one, we could be anointed. That even though he, or because he took our cup, our cup could now overflow. Through Jesus, God's goodness and mercy surely will follow us all the days of our life. And more than that, because of what Jesus did, we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christian. Life under God's care is a supplied life. Everything you need is found in Christ. Life under God's care is a protected life. The sin that should have fallen on you fell on Christ. Life under God's care is an abundant life. The abundance of God's goodness and mercy is yours only through Christ. Jesus said that he came so that those who trust in him might live life, what? Abundantly. And immediately after, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And life under God's care is an eternal life. You can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When Jesus, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so put yourself back in that place that you imagined at the very beginning of the service. This place that is the most beautiful place you've ever seen. Think of that beauty. And remember that to some it has become an old scene that they pass by on their commute. Friends, don't let this profound beauty of Psalm 23 pass by you because of its familiarity. Don't have the gospel be the stunning landscape that you miss on your commute through life. Friends, as ordinary as it may sound, life under God's care is good. There is nothing ordinary about that news. Let's pray.